in my last lecture, I uh, presented this plan, which I'm particularly proud of, because I don't think anyone had, had, had drawn it before. And what this plan shows, just to remind you, is the, um, the, the, the base material upon which um, the West End was founded. And this is the uh, manor of Westminster that was purchased by uh, Henry VIII and then subsequently developed by the, uh, by the Stuarts. So um, all of this land um, here from um, the Westbourne River right over actually to Dr Drury Lane, which isn't on this map here, um, and um, up here to um, uh, Oxford Street formed the land purchased by Henry VIII and then subsequently developed by uh, monarchs um, after that. And um, I did mention, I think, in my last lecture that this huge amount of land purchased by Henry VIII included uh, Covent Garden. But I didn't pursue the idea, knowing that I was going to talk about it um, this evening. So that is exactly what I'm going to do tonight. I'm going to talk about um, the part of the West End that lies uh, between St Martin's Lane and um, Drury Lane on the east. And I'm going to um, focus uh, in particular on the Theatre Royal in, uh, in Drury Lane. But first, I just need to recap um, a little bit. Like the story I told you last time, um, what I'm going to talk about this evening really starts with Henry VIII. Um, and he, as I've already said, purchased everything that you see on this map. Um, and the further, furthest eastern boundary of uh, the, the Tudor royal lands were, in fact, Drury Lane. Um, a, an ancient, uh, in fact, a Saxon uh, road named after a barrister who built his house there in the latter part of Henry VII's uh, reign. And uh, the land that we now know as Covent Garden was originally orchards and, and pasture and a little bit of woodland, which belonged to Westminster Abbey and was bought from Westminster Abbey with all the rest of the Westminster lands by Henry VIII. But unlike uh, the land that you see on, uh, on this map, particularly the area that is now St. James's, Henry VIII didn't particularly need Covent Garden. And um, he and his son, Edward VI, granted out uh, 40 acres of Covent Garden to the Earl of Bedford in two grants, one in 1541 and the second in 1552. And so in this way the uh, Bedford family came to own the uh, 40 acres at the heart of what Covent Garden is today. And you might be able to see the dotted line here that defines the land they bought. Here's St Martin's Lane. Here's Long Acre. And here's Drury Lane. And this is the 40 acres here purchased, uh, um, uh, granted to the Bedford family by the, um, by the Tudors. Their own house, Bedford House, as I shall go on to show you, um, was built in the southern portion here, just um, north of the Strand. Um, as uh, I explained in my last lecture, um, monarchs from Queen Elizabeth onwards attempted to control the growth of London, and in particular, they passed a series of proclamations banning the building of new houses in uh, Westminster. As far as we know, uh, the Earl of Bedford didn't contravene any of these regulations himself. But in 1612, we know that he encompassed the land you see uh, on this map here with a substantial brick wall and divided it into two more or less equal parts. Uh, remarkably, we have this plan. 
drawn in 1612, which shows uh, the wall that is built around the Bedford lands. Here's Drury Lane. Uh, here is Longacre, says it up here. Here's St. Martin's Lane. Um, down here uh, is, is, the, um, is the Strand. And you can see there are two chunks of land here. There's the bit in the middle, which says Covent Garden Pasture. This is the land that the Earl of Bedford kept for himself. And then there's this peripheral land here that is leased out to a number of individual um, leaseholders, um, supposedly for them to farm. But in reality, as I will go on to explain, they started building houses on it. Um, so uh, what this uh, map um, shows us is that whilst the Earl uh, himself kept uh, the Covent Garden pasture um, clear, um, his tenants um, erected a whole lot of illegal dwellings all the way around it. Now, we actually know um, roughly how many um, houses were built illegally on this strip of land around the edge because in 1634, the Earl was taken to court for illegally uh, building um, these houses or allowing these houses to be built. And a surviving survey, which I think almost certainly is connected with this court case, show that 504 houses had been built uh, on the periphery of the Covent Garden pasture um, by that date. Now, as I explained last time, James I and Charles I were not implacably opposed to new building in Westminster. But it had to be done on their terms and to their specification, as the example of Charles I and St. James's Square um, shows quite happily. And uh, uh, under James I and Charles I, several aristocrats got permission to build mansions on royal freehold land. And in 1628, Charles I's attention turned to these Bedford lands uh, as a possible site for some prestigious um, housing development. In fact, the idea of developing Covent Garden probably came from the pressing need of St Martin's Parish to build a chapel of ease to accommodate uh, the rapidly growing uh, population um, who couldn't fit into St Martin in the fields. And in fact, uh, we uh, have a letter from Archbishop Lord, the Archbishop of Canterbury, um, asking the fourth Earl of Bedford whether, in fact, um, a chapel of ease could be built on this pasture land you see in the middle of this map to uh, relieve the pressure on St. Martin in the Fields. Now, the Earl of Bedford was a shrewd businessman, and he saw the opportunity that the construction of a new church would give him to develop his pasture land for housing if he could get a royal licence to do so. But before the poor man knew it, Inigo Jones, accompanied by the king himself, turned up in the middle of his pasture and got out plans that they'd already prepared, not only for the construction of a church, but for the development of a brand new high-class housing estate. Now, again, remarkably, we have two of these plans, these sketches, in the hand of Inigo Jones. Now, I don't know whether this is the actual piece of paper that they were holding uh, in the field, but it must have been something very like it, because what it shows 
is the block, which we know now, on which um, St. Paul's Church, Covent Garden, was eventually built. Here is the um, piazza, where the Covent Garden market is, um, and you can see um, here the roads uh, going into it. There's another plan, very similar, um, but uh, 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 helpfully, this one shows um, to the south here uh, the area that was occupied by Bedford House itself. And so there was a very close relationship between the Earl's house and the um, development of the, um, of the piazza. And here, of course, is the church um, and the churchyard um, uh, around it. So um, these uh, sketches um, uh, show an entirely different sort of development to any uh, development that had hitherto been seen in London. If you look at the way that this is constructed, uh, what you can see is a closed environment. There are no real through roads here. You can't do a quick cut through Covent Garden. This is uh, deliberately constructed to be approached circuitously, to avoid uh, undesirable through traffic, and to keep the area socially uh, exclusive. Now, we know that this was not what the fourth Earl of Bedford had in mind. He wanted to have something much simpler and something much cheaper. In fact, uh, uh, later in uh, another legal case that resulted in this, he claimed that the royal intervention had put at least £6,000 on the cost of his development. But, nevertheless, the Earl got a licence from the King to build his new scheme and went ahead under uh, the BDI of Inigo Jones, um, Charles I and the Privy Council itself. And so this, ladies and gentlemen, is how we got uh, Covent Garden, the Covent Garden that we know so well from paintings, drawings and prints. And this is this astonishing um, aerial view of London. I've shown it many times in lots of different contexts in, in this uh, lecture hall. But um, tonight it shows uh, brilliantly the piazza, um, as it was called, um, with the houses designed by Inigo Jones uh, uh, and designed very specifically to attract uh, a, a better class of residents. You see the, the church here. And to the south, the gardens of Bedford House and Bedford House itself. And this is something it's hard to grasp today because, of course, this is where um, the, the, the covered market is. This is all built over now. Um, whilst you think of this, this development here as being designed for the, uh, the aristocrats um, who would want to um, have uh, townhouses here, of course, it actually also provided a fantastic view for the Earl of Bedford himself. So uh, these uh, new uh, houses, which you see uh, on this print also here... Um, very quickly uh, became extremely fashionable um, and attracted many uh, prominent uh, courtiers. And I think, interestingly, it also attracted uh, a small colony of leading painters, including Daniel Mittens and Paul Van Soma, um, which is an interesting uh, side point to make. Well, let's move um, onwards through the Civil War uh, and through the Commonwealth to the Restoration because after 1660, um, the area again began to become a focus for royal attention. But this time, uh, royal attention of a fundamentally different sort. Throughout the Middle Ages, um, 
plays, or what we might call theatre, had been tremendously popular with all sectors of society. Like so many aspects of medieval life, theatre was itinerant. Groups of players moved from place to place, performing in market squares and inn yards, uh, or the houses or castles of the rich um, uh, patrons. But in the Elizabethan period, things began to change. London had grown into a vast and rich city with uh, a population um, hungry for entertainment and hedonism. The staging of plays in the yards of inns had become an almost permanent feature of everyday life. And as they did, the managers of theatre companies realised that they could significantly increase their profits if they cut out the innkeepers and built their own venues. And so in the late 1570s and 1580s came the first purpose-built theatres in England. Uh, They were circular or octagonal arenas without roofs with tiered seating on four or five levels. And this is Holler's uh, view of about 1644 showing um, the globe and the hope. Actually, the the labels are the wrong way around, but you can see very prominently um, the two theatres in Southwark on the uh, South Bank. Uh, We, of course, today are all very familiar with this because we um, have got the reconstructed globe, but um, we also uh, know that uh, the globe is very um, accurately uh, rebuilt, and this drawing by Johann Witz um, of the Swan Theatre, done in 1596, uh, is is a piece of contemporary evidence showing these raised stages which projected out into the audience... Uh, The audience could stand on three sides of the stage, um, either standing round the edge there or up uh, uh, up in the galleries. The actors made their entrance from one of two doors at the back of the stage, um, and there was very little opportunity for the use of scenes or sets. Um, And, of course, all the performances had to be carried out in broad daylight uh, in the early afternoon. In the early 17th century, under the patronage of James I and his courtiers, many uh, of these uh, theatrical companies would also run a winter season, acting in uh, great halls or even in royal palaces. And um, it's possible to visualise this if we make a a quick stroll down the road from here and go to Middle Temple Hall. Um, Just off the Strand, we see the very room in which wintertime uh, performances were um, acted. And so it was in theatres like this, uh, either in the winter or in the summer, that Shakespeare, Marlowe and Ben Jonson uh, worked. Their audiences comprised most elements of the society, apprentices, shopkeepers, craftsmen, lawyers, merchants, um, civil servants, even um, the nobility. And the cost uh, of admission was very affordable, a penny to go in the pit. Um, This is about a fifth of a a labourer's daily wage. Um, whilst a stool on the stage was sixpence and a box or private room was a shilling. Now, the great popularity of the theatre under Elizabeth and James um, established seven playhouses in London, and uh, they became increasingly um, undermined by the religious and moral sensibilities of middle-class lawyers, merchants, academics and churchmen. They began to associate the stage with sin, social unrest, and moral laxness. 
and they, of course, were right. The theatres were located near brothels, and prostitutes uh, cruised the audiences for clients. Young men went to plays to be seen and to rub shoulders and perhaps some of their more intimate parts with girls. Uh, Drinking, rowdiness and the occasional brawl were all part of a good evening out at the theatre. William Prynne, writing in the mid-1630s, thought, and I quote, "'Popular stage plays were the very pomp of the devil, "'sinful, heathenish, lewd, ungodly spectacles "'and most pernicious corruption,' condemned in all ages as intolerable mischiefs to churches, to the manners, minds and souls of men. He wasn't mincing any words there. And these attitudes towards the stage actually became official policy as Parliament set itself up as an alternative to Charles I's monarchy. In 1642, Parliament banned theatre supposedly until the troubles were over, And the globe uh, was destroyed in 1644, the Fortune, the Phoenix and Salisbury Court theatres in 1649 and the Blackfriars Theatre in 1655. So when in May 1660 Charles II returned in triumph from exile to re-establish the monarchy on the crumbled ruins of Oliver Cromwell's austere republic, uh, with him... Uh, was the future manager of the Theatre Royal Drury Lane, Thomas Killigrew. Courtier, playwright, womaniser and wit. You see him here sporting his royalist credentials um, with a great pile of books and I love the dog at his knees, which is actually, you probably can't see it, it's wearing a collar with Killigrew written around it. He was born in 1612. And at the age of 21, he entered uh, the court as a page to Charles I. His first and most popular play was a bawdy comedy called The Parson's Wedding. But he also wrote and performed a number of tragedies before the outbreak of the Civil War. And as he did so, he earned himself uh, a reputation as a reckless spendthrift. Uh, This engraving published by um, Holler, portrays him in despair uh, with uh, a monkey perched on his shoulder, uh, dressed in a sort of dressing gown, which is decorated with the recognisable portraits of 24 women. This was an illustration to a poem of his called Lechery. So this uh, very colourful figure during the Civil War fled to the continent Uh, where he won himself a second wife with a dowry of £10,000, and he hovered around the uh, court of the exiled Charles II, entertaining him with wit and humour of an exceedingly doubtful taste. And it was presumably during this period that he secured a promise to be granted a licence to run a theatre if Charles was to ever reclaim his throne. Well, on the 25th of May, uh, 1660, the Royal Charles sailed into Dover to be greeted by the great Cromwellian general Monk and a crowd of joyous subjects. Killigrew had been entertaining the king on deck and Pepys records his jokes. 
But either 300 years or something in the telling makes it almost impossible to find them remotely funny today. Read them for yourself. I'm not even going to read them out. Um, but thanks to the um, increasingly regal Oliver Cromwell, allowing the performance of a limited number of plays from the um, 1650s, London in 1660 had at least three playhouses. At Drury Lane, there was the cockpit with a troupe of actors under the management of John Rhodes, uh, a former bookseller. In Clerkenwell was the Red Bull, um, an inn, and William um, Beeston and his troupe were installed at the Salisbury Court Playhouse. But within two months of the restoration, Charles II overrode the businesses of these three managers. A royal warrant gave the sole right to stage theatrical productions to just two men, William Davenant and Thomas Killigrew. Killigrew had received his reward for entertaining King Charles with six years of bawdy jokes. William Davenant, who had been granted a patent for a theatre back in 1639, had journeyed to France to petition the future king while he was still in exile. To ensure their monopoly was watertight, the warrant also ordered that all other theatres would be, and this is the word the warrant uses, absolutely suppressed. Davenant and Killigrew were to have extra privileges too. They were allowed to censor their own plays, employ women as actors. This is absolutely radical. Very, very first time it happened. And by um, 1663, these licences that they had been given were made hereditary. So why did Charles give only two licences for theatres in Restoration London? A king so fond of entertainment might have been expected to issue many more. Well, of course, the answer is that the theatre was still capable of being politically extremely subversive. In Restoration London, violence, civil disorder, religious dissent bubbled vigorously beneath the surface. Neither Charles, his uh, courtiers or business interests wanted this substrata of disorder stirred up more than was necessary. The king, quite simply, wanted to make sure that he could control political and religious satire in London and prevent it from getting out of control. Killigrew was given a licence to form a company of actors by the king called the King's Men, and remarkably, the present Theatre Royal Drury Lane still operates under that very same licence. The king's brother and successor, James Duke of York, gave Davenant a, a, a company to be known as the Duke's Men. And um, they uh, eventually, um, in the uh, later 18th century, established themselves where the Royal Opera House is now. And uh, Covent Garden Opera House still uses that same um, patent granted by the Duke of York. As their status became a legal reality... Davenant and Killigrew must have rubbed their hands with glee. Seven theatres were built in London between 1576 and 1605. London at the time had 200,000 inhabitants, whilst in 1660 there were 300,000 inhabitants and in Greater London perhaps as many as 500,000. And only two theatres now could carve up this massive London audience uh, between them. 
Although, over the years, various other theatres did spring up, their monopoly lasted, at least in law, until 1843. Now, both Killigrew and um, Davenant um, soon opted to convert tennis courts into theatres. Uh, this is the plan you've uh, seen, the draw drawing you've seen before. Um, this was probably in response to the fashion for using indoor tennis courts for theatrical performances in France. But by um, November 1660, Killigrew had already moved a troupe of actors into Gibbons's tennis court in the now lost Veer Street, that is A. So that's where Kingsway is. The whole site of it's been Kingsway plows through that area where A is. But that's where the first Killigrew theatre was. Um, it wasn't very satisfactory. The stage had no accommodation for scenery, and the auditorium only sat 400 people. And so he began to uh, make plans to build a new theatre in Drury Lane. Now, we don't know how much thought he gave to the location of this new theatre. There had been a theatre there, um, sited in the old cockpit um, at the Restoration, and so I suppose there was a precedent but it must have been, I think, the case that Killigrew wanted to build his theatre near the houses of potential wealthy patrons. In fact, before the Civil War, Killigrew himself had lived in the piazza at Covent Garden. Um, on the other hand, at least some of the first restoration residents of Covent Garden must have been drawn there by the theatre itself. Indeed, like a character in uh, Thomas Nabbs's play, which was actually called Covent Garden. In this play, a character announces, and I quote, We shall then be near the cockpit in Drury Lane and see a play now and then. But in reality, more than improving the social mix of the piazza, the Theatre Royal probably stimulated tavern life in the area and led to a very large number of local coffee houses. So just to be clear, um, C is where the um, Theatre Royal eventually ended up. There was another theatre in Lincoln's Inn uh, in B there. But um, essentially, Killigrew's uh, lot moved from Veer Street in A to C um, in, uh, uh, in, uh, just off Drury Lane. So the principal effect of this was the stimulation of taverns and coffee houses. And one of the first of these was opened at the northeast corner of Bow Street and Russell Street in the same year as the opening of the Theatre Royal. Um, Will's Coffee House was founded a few years later, nearly opposite uh, in Bow Street. And these coffee houses, uh, founded as a direct result um, of the uh, theatre being there, played an extremely important part in the political and cultural life uh, of London. At Will's Coffee House... Uh, Dryden hung out, and he was spotted there by Pepys in 1664. This was Pepys's first visit to a coffee house, and he records in his diary, I stopped at the great coffee house there, where I never was before, where Dryden, the poet, I knew at Cambridge, and all the wits of the town, and Harris, the player, and Mr Hook of our college were there. The Bedford Coffee House in the Piazza was frequented by Fielding, Pope, Sheridan, Churchill, Garrick, Foote, Quinn, Collins, Horace Walpole, and uh, others. So, in this uh, area, 
where um, a, a huge new intellectual, cultural, social, political life was bubbling up, Killigrew succeeded in raising the capital to build his new theatre, the point uh, here, C. Um, you can see it with the arrow pointed there, and you can see it in relation to the, the, the piazza. Um, the piece of land he got was not really a very satisfactory one. As you can see, it was uh, landlocked. It was almost completely surrounded on all four sides with um, other um, buildings. But his new uh, theatre was completed in May 1663 at the cost of £2,400. Killigrew's uh, new playhouse was fully equipped to deal with scenery and spectacle. But it wasn't very big. The ground plan was probably around the same size as the present stage of the Theatre Royal Drury Lane. So it wasn't very big. It didn't last long. Uh, In uh, January 1672, the theatre burnt the ground, taking with it all its scenery, costumes, and a good number of the surrounding uh, taverns and coffee houses. So Killigrew and his shareholders had to start again, and to finance the new theatre, they further complicated matters by mortgaging the lease of the new site uh, and the royal patent. It's not known exactly how much money they raised, but the cost of the theatre was probably somewhere between £3,500 and £4,500. With the site and the finance, all Killigrew now needed was an architect. Well, we don't know who designed the first theatre, but it may well have been John Webb, who had built theatres at Whitehall Palace before the Civil War and again in 1665. But Webb was dead by 1674, and it seems as if Killigrew turned to Christopher Wren. Now, by this date, Wren was um, indisputably the most famous, successful, and fashionable architect in England. Charles II had chosen him to rebuild Whitehall Palace, and he'd sent him to France to get ideas for the new building. Uh, He'd only, a few years later, been put in charge um, of the architectural aspects of rebuilding London after the Great Fire. And in 1669, he's made uh, surveyor of the king's works. Wren and Killigrew must have known each other, though I think it's extremely doubtful that they could have ever been friends, given Wren's rather austere and serious-minded character and Killigrew's foppishness. But Killigrew's wife, Charlotte, was the first lady of the Queen's Privy Chamber. So she was a very senior figure in the royal household, and they had a big lodging at uh, Whitehall Palace, and Wren unquestionably would have known them both. Um, We don't know what brief Killigrew gave Wren. We don't know whether even Charles II was involved in the discussion about the design. But whatever happened, uh, we we think that uh, uh, Wren was commissioned to build this new theatre. Now, this wasn't technically speaking, the first theatre Wren had ever built, because, of course, he'd built the Sheldonian Theatre, his very, very first building in Oxford. But it wasn't really a theatre. It was more of a university uh, assembly hall. And whilst things like acoustics and sightline were important, it wasn't the same as building uh, a theatre. And Killigrew must have expected Wren to design him the most modern and fashionable theatre possible. And in doing so, I think both architect and patron looked to France. While Charles II was in exile in Paris, 
um, Louis XIV put him up in a building that we know today as the Palais Royal. Um, and it was in this building that France's first modern theatre was built in 1635 for Cardinal Richelieu. Charles uh, and possibly Killigrew also knew this theatre very well. But by 1672, it was extremely old-fashioned. And the theatre that everybody looked to was the one that was built in 1659 in the Tuileries in front of the Louvre. And here you see Mariette's uh, uh, engraving of it, published in his Architecture Française in 1727. This uh, theatre was designed by Italian architects on an Italian model and must have been uh, seen by uh, uh, um, Sir Christopher Wren when he was in Paris in 1664. Whether he uh, bought engravings of the building when he was there or whether he sent for them later, whether he took sketches of it, we don't know. But what we can be fairly certain is that Wren used this great French theatre as his model. And we know this because there survives in the hand of Wren this drawing for Killigrew's new theatre. Uh, it's a section which shows um, the, this is the Catherine Street end here, the Drury, end, uh, Drury Lane end is that side. Here are the stairs which take you up to the, um, to the gallery, to the circle. Um, here, is, uh, here are the stalls and the pit. Here's the stage, uh, very, very deep stage here. I'll talk about that in a moment here. Um, here are the boxes. Um, at the back of the stage above here um, is the, the famous green room in which the actors got uh, dressed and in which uh, uh, um, the audience would, would crowd into after the uh, performance to um, talk to the actors um, and, um, uh, uh, and admire them. Um, even if this drawing shows the theatre as it was finally built, and we can't be totally sure of that because... This could be a preliminary drawing. It doesn't really give us much idea of the site because the site actually was extremely problematic from the start. And this is my um, reconstruction of the site of the, the, the first Theatre Royal Drury Lane, or the, the second one, the Wren one, um, which I published a, a couple of years ago now. And you can see how, like the first theatre, it's completely surrounded by houses. All that shaded area are houses and taverns. And uh, the only way you could get in was uh, through a door on what was then Bridges Street, now Catherine Street. And you went down a long, thin passage to get into uh, the, the, the theatre um, and a very long, thin passage um, for the actors uh, to come in and go at the um, back. Um, so there is an important question here, an important architectural question which is that given that this theatre is completely surrounded by buildings, how did Christopher Wren get light into the auditorium? And the answer to that question can be found in a map of the West End published in 1681-2, part of a project started by John Ogilby to survey the city and the West End. And this map of the West End had small vignettes of important buildings drawn in perspective. And one of these is the Drury Lane Theatre, there. And if you look at that uh, very closely, you can see that it uh, shows a roof that is very similar to the roof on the Wren drawing, but with the addition of a dome. 
And that dome, I think, was providing light to the um, uh, interior of the theatre. And this would make it um, the first uh, dome to be built um, in uh, England. Those of you who uh, came to my lecture on the Royal College of Surgeons would have heard me claiming that to be the first dome in England. Well, I was wrong. This is the first dome um, in England. I um, I doubt if I'm going to find another one um, earlier. Um, So uh, there is one other chance survival that helps us to bring the interior of Wren's only theatre to life, and that is uh, an engraving here which was used as a frontispiece to an opera called Ariadne. Uh, And this uh, shows the proscenium arch of uh, the theatre with these great Corinthian pilasters, which you just saw a few moments ago in Wren's uh, drawing. And it quite clearly shows the stage and the scenery for the opera that was performed um, at the Theatre Royal um, in Drury Lane in 1674. Well, the opening of this theatre... In, uh, on the 26th of March, 1674, heralded a new age in London theatre-going. There was a world of difference between covered tennis courts or the um, uh, theatres um, of the South Bank, the circular Elizabethan theatres, and Wren's French-inspired, purpose-designed theatre equipped with all the latest uh, technology. The Gulf was perhaps even wider for a pre-restoration audience that would have found it hard to reconcile their uh, experience of of theatre-going with this uh, style. This new theatre was smaller, it was indoors, the seats were much more expensive, and as a consequence, it was much more like the wintertime Jacobean performance uh, populated by the better off and the more educated. And so the incredible social mix of the pre Commonwealth Theatre was to be banished from the world of live entertainment until the coming of the modern rock concert. Uh, Now, this, of course, was uh, reflected in the social mix of Covent Garden, a mix that now saw very regular visits by the king himself. This is a uh, reconstruction, not one of mine, um, of the Theatre Royal uh, Drury Lane, And um, it's not marked, but what it shows is that uh, these boxes here, uh, the stage boxes here, um, were actually uh, a royal box that was uh, reserved for the king. Um, And if you go to the Theatre Royal uh, today, you'll see there is still uh, a royal box reserved for the monarch, although these days, of course, you can hire it yourself. Um, Charles uh, II was an extremely um, regular uh, visitor. He was passionate about the theatre, and he was very happy to be seen out um, uh, in his box, um, uh, as actually plays were very rarely performed um, at court. And within a very small number of years, a group of young literati, known as the Wits, had gathered round the king, and his patronage of the wits and his enjoyment of their company made writing for the theatre highly fashionable amongst the upper echelons of society. Um, and it perhaps uh, drew more playwrights um, into um, the, the um, uh, history of the, the theatre than at any other uh, point. And these people came from the aristocracy um, and the uh, gentry. And of course, they were incorporating uh, amusing, amusing portrayals of each other in their comedies, lots and lots of um, in-jokes, which, of course, makes 
their uh, work really rather indigestible and, not to say, sometimes incomprehensible um, today. Uh, but the Restoration, as a consequence, saw for the first time the emergence of actors as celebrities, um, people such as um, Anne Bracegirdle and Thomas Betterton, who was the most renowned actor of his age. Um, and he was, in fact, buried uh, in Westminster Abbey with his wife, uh, so uh, famous uh, he was. And so going to the theatre um, was not uh, an unusual evening out for most of the well-heeled audience that uh, uh, attended um, the Theatre Rogery Lane in Charles II's reign. It was part of the leisure circuit for rich and fashionable society. Um, they went frequently, um, if not several times a week, several times a month, and they were very happy to see the same play again and again. And this was a big attraction for living in Covent Garden. Like going to uh, church, theatre-goers went to be seen uh, and to see. And the design of Wren's Theatre, which you see here, facilitated this. Um, large, candle-filled chandeliers ensured that the auditorium was just as bright as the stage. Um, and uh, like going to church, theatre-goers um, were uh, quite... Um, uh, sorry, unlike going to church, theatre-goers were quite rowdy. Um, and uh, as in the Jacobean period, uh, their behaviour um, sometimes just degenerated into sort of drunken um, brawls. Uh, the audience chatted and joked through performances. They heckled actors and their fellows. And um, it was customary for fashionably dressed young wits to show off with humorous asides or witty interjections as the actors were in mid-stride, often jumping onto the stage themselves. Um, the actors, in their turn, often played along, giving as good as they got. And, of course, uh, the person who came to Charles II's notice, because she was brilliant at doing this, was uh, Nell Gwynne, who could reduce the audience to helpless laughter uh, and a fast uh, rejoinder when these people um, had, a, had a go at her. But the Restoration Theatre, you mustn't just simply think of it as a bawdy, licentious and rowdy plaything of the aristocracy. The performances were not just incidental background entertainment, but were judged by the excellence of the players and the quality of the plays. Men such as the diarist John Evelyn, uh, Judge Jeffreys of the Bloody Assizes, the scientist and architect Robert Hooke and Christopher Wren himself were all regular playgoers. The social division of the house, and I suspect to a degree its behaviour, roughly followed the seat prices. Uh, the upper gallery, which you see up there, cost a shilling and attracted um, the most derision from satirists, along with the middle gallery, which cost 18 pence. The most expensive seats, at two shillings and sixpence, were in the pit, uh, directly in front of the stage. Um, and obviously um, also in the uh, uh, boxes. Pepys's outrage at citizens, apprentices and others in the theatre was mainly at their presence in the expensive seats, which annoyed him much more than um, seeing uh, 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 um, lowlier uh, colleagues lauding it in better seats than himself. Now, whilst we might be able to imagine a restoration audience, um, even if we might not have wanted to be part of one, it is very difficult for us to imagine a restoration play as it was originally acted. 
And this is really partly because no theatre survives today in which the restoration layout of stage, scenery and seats actually survives. At um, Drury Lane, the main um, performance took place on a stage which projected some 20 foot beyond the proscenium arch. So there's the proscenium arch, and here is the stage. Um, sorry, here is the proscenium arch, sorry. Here is the stage projecting out 20 feet. Today, we would call it a thrust stage, um, which came out into the um, audience. Um, but what you can see from uh, Wren's uh, cross-section is that uh, behind uh, the proscenium arch, there was uh, another stage. Um, it was called the scenic stage. And the scenic stage here was the place, uh, uh, as the title suggests, where the scenery uh, was, uh, uh, was set out. And the full depth of the scenic stage was 45 feet. But um, it looked even deeper by the use of scenery painted in perspective, dwindling to a vanishing point at the back, uh, at the back of the back wall. Uh, and the scenes were painted on a number of sliding uh, uh, um, flats, and you can see them here, which slid backwards and forwards. And uh, in this reconstruction, again, you can see the sliding flats, which slid in grooves, worked by um, uh, strings underneath, which enabled, actually, very rapid uh, changes of, uh, of scene to take place. Um, underneath the stage was a complicated system of pulleys and ropes, um, and uh, the technology, actually, all came from the Navy. It was based on a system of blocks uh, and pulleys as used on um, sailing ships. And the only drawback was uh, the terrible noise that made these, uh, that, that happened when they, they changed the scenes. And so usually they covered this with um, sound effects. So when the scenes uh, changed, there's a great roll of thunder caused usually by a, a cannonball being rolled down a big piece of wood which hid the noise of the changes um, uh, uh, of, of scenery. So this visually and technically complex arrangement um, could instantly reveal spectacular scenes of horrific carnage, victims in the throes of torture, uh, uh, the inside of a prison, tombs, vaults, even heaven uh, and hell. And here you see um, this scene from Ariadne again showing the deep perspective um, of, the, um, of the scenic stage. Um, so Wren and um, Killigrew's theatre uh, remained uh, until the 1770s, when the great actor-manager David Garrick commissioned the greatest architect of his day, Robert Adam, to finally give the theatre a street frontage. Uh, and it was a magnificent thing, and here you see um, the basic recladding of the uh, outside of the Theatre Royal Drury Lane by uh, Robert Adam with a rusticated basement uh, and an elegant um, uh, ionic uh, columns um, supporting a pediment uh, containing the royal arms, which you can see balancing uh, on the top, uh, um, uh, top there. Um, no one could be in any doubt that behind this elegant facade lay a place of real quality uh, and style. Uh, inside, um, Robert Adam uh, dismantled uh, most of Wren's uh, interior uh, fittings, enlarging the size of the auditorium and the stage at the expense of some of the subsidiary offices at the back. 
Um, and what I think is particularly interesting about this drawing is uh, the, the ceiling. Uh, the ceiling that you see in this engraving we know is the ceiling that was uh, installed by Robert Adam because the original coloured watercolours for it uh, still exist in the Soan Museum uh, in Lincoln's, Lincoln's Inn Fields. Um, and although you can see a sort of hole in the middle which is apparently looking up at the, the sky, this is actually a canvas that goes all the way across. This is a bit of trompe l'oeil in the middle. And uh, I think that the reason that, um, that Adam creates this trompe l'oeil uh, dome in the middle is because he is uh, uh, um, imitating the dome that Christopher Wren had in that theatre that was uh, taken out by Adam, um, but people had got very used to at the time. Indeed, by um, uh, Adam's time, the theatre was uh, lit entirely by um, candlelight, and there was no natural light in the auditorium um, at all. Um, by this time, though, um, a big social change had come over the whole of Covent Garden. The uh, theatre was still very much patronised by royalty and the aristocracy, but it was no longer the place to live. In 1670, the Earl of Bedford was granted rights to hold a market in the piazza. And while the Drury Lane Theatre uh, had contributed to the rather sort of raffish nature of the area in the years after the Restoration, the, the foundation of the market had a much more profound effect. The market basically spoiled the appearance of the piazza. It filled the streets with noise and traffic, and although for more than 200 years it earned an ever-increasing income for its owners, it eventually became such a heavy political liability that in the years, early years of the 20th century, the 11th Duke of Bedford decided uh, to sell both it um, and the whole of the Covent Garden uh, estate. And it was only at that point, amazingly, that um, the Theatre Royal Drury Lane ceased to be um, a, a leasehold site of the Duke of Bedford and became a freehold site, which it, of course, is today. So what had once been the most fashionable quarter of the West End, yielding some of the, most, uh, the highest rents and attracting the country's most important theatres, it now became famous as a fruit and vegetable market. But, of course... Its theatrical connections are, um, continue today, uh, not just by one, but by two great theatres, because in 1731, along came what we now know as the Royal Opera House to join the Theatre Royal uh, Drury Lane. But the Opera House is really a Johnny-come-lately, because the Theatre Royal that stands today has the longest continuous record of performances of any theatre in the world, there are older theatres, but none that still put on eight shows a week. Thank you very much. <laughs>